Well, cut your beer. I can't afford. I love old style. <laughs> you did, didn't we? Yeah, last time you were here, we got beer that wasn't ice house. Yeah, because I was the one buying it. Oh yeah. yeah. Wait, no, I bought the we bought the chips. Tragedy was a afoot that day. I don't remember. <laughs> that that was that's a happy day. <laughs> we're leaving all of this in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's that's how it goes. So we started the last episode off perfectly in a way we never do, where we just get to it. And uh, and now there's a little just to remind you who you're fucking dealing with here. Okay. So well, really, if- what happened is because I was so sad at the beginning of the last one, I didn't say stupid shit because that's usually what happens. Yeah, you were in a little bitchy mood, and I had to get you yeah. out of it. Yep. Don't but, worry, guys. We learned something today, and that is, if you are mentally ill, don't take medicine. Take just Franco. There you go. <laughs> Honestly, though, I mean, well, as we get yeah. to his more downer movies, I, I do think they work on a frequency of less contributing to your downerism and kind of help stabilize you. Agreed. That's so they're my favorite. Yeah, I'm. Yep. Yeah, all right. Well, if you are excited for us to get to those you gotta you gotta get through these first so but that's okay because it's a delightful journey that you're gonna love and it's only gonna make the others seem uh, more vibrant so here we are 1963 Rafifi in the city or also our kind of favorite shit do you remember Paco yeah <laughs> this um, is the kind of plot the two of us can really uh enjoy sinking our teeth into yes we can um this was shot in 1963 didn't come out in france till 64 uh spain it didn't come out till like 65 and 66 and italy it played in rome for one day in 67 <laughs> one show only Rafifi in the city <laughs> yeah we know what you want it's real it's Rafifi in the city you uh you didn't get enough uh what's his fucking name whatever anyway um I just completely forgot what I was gonna say there um yeah no Rafifi in the city it's uh he's back in the world of film noir but this time he's in Central America instead of Nolans. Instead of Nolans. Yes, he is mm-hmm. um getting up to some really beautiful stuff here. I mean, this is uh whatever your complaints might be of the movie, his uh strength of shooting and style is extremely jacked up, as they say in this one. The only real connection to Rafifi also in the title is just the guy from the original Rafifi, the Jules Dessin film, doesn't really have anything to do with Rafifi or that movie. So um, don't worry about. Well, luckily, you forget. You forget instantly because it doesn't matter. Because um, we have the salacious story um, about an informer working for a cop. We are very much in that world. And also Maurice Le Prince is my favorite name for a sleazebag politician ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. And to say nothing of like his posters being all over the city of the title, um, which. Oh, it's yeah. Visually, this thing, like you said, I mean, it is off the fucking chain. <laughs> I'm not sure how Generalissimo Franco and his censor board missed that. 
I don't either because it's rare. It's it's one of the like most intense middle fingers up. I mean, they had relaxed some of their like hard, more hardcore Big Brother style policies at that point, but still, it was um, it's impressive that that made it through. Because well, this this movie, before we get into it, to me clearly is very much Franco, um, very much saying, you know, Maurice as the evil man running Spain is very much like you can pretend you dialed that shit back, but just like Maurice the Prince, you just got your fucking tendos everywhere and it's a little quieter now. It's, and we get uh, the crazy, the, the opening, right? Uh, the the opening. whisper voiceover, which is something he fucks with periodically, but the whisper voiceover and all the other giallo things that we were talking about last time, there's a there's a lot of interesting, or I guess a, a, a little bit of interesting Jello stuff woven throughout this one. Yeah, there's a car crash scene that for sure makes me think of Mr. Argento. Um, that opening, <laughs> yeah, you're, very much so. Oh, there's it's a, already on this journey. We've realized how much Argento is coming from the land of Franco. And it's really, I never, I truly had never thought about it. I had not until we'd started doing it this way. I hadn't either. So there, all you, all you little Jollo heads out there, uh, who love to be little stinkers about Franco, we've just blown your 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 beanie wide <laughs> off your head. Okay, so <laughs> you're gonna have to really cope with that fact that we just laid down with such cold confidence. And it's true, though. Also, what you said about the opening. This is really we're starting to see that first gust of that pure franco wind the way it's told over the images does point towards a little bit more of that freewheeling dreamy aesthetic that he is going to nail down hardcore and make it his bitch uh coming up <laughs> yep and yep. uh and but it's, yeah. i'll go ahead no, no no i'm just saying there will be other movies that we're going to get to in this episode that hint at that but this is the first time we get that first like franco image in my opinion yep no i agree and it's really it's really striking to watch too because even though we talked about last time i am a fan of death whistles the blues for sure but this one really feels like he's swinging for the fences um and it's wild because it, it it's very much a film noir you know through and through but there's so much influence of the horror stuff that would come. And there's a lot of our house influence in this one too. Um, and the way he combines it all makes this one, I think really zip by this is one of those movies that ends up feeling to me anyway, that it's, you know, less than an hour long. Cause it just okay. fucking moves. It does something that the other one we talked about death whistles a blues does <laughs> do. And that is nail its pacing down. And this one, this one's got it. The funny thing that I love about the the lore of this movie is um something we're gonna get to in a second. So, when Mr. Orson Welles needed someone, uh, he had asked someone once, "I need a second unit director for some movies I'm gonna do." And this guy goes, "You know, whoever he's talking to is trying to figure it out." Welles has seen Death Whistles of Blues and says, "I like this." So this guy says, oh, no, 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 you don't want to work with this Franco guy. He sucks. You should see his latest one, Rafifi in the City. 
So Wells goes and sees it. This guy thinks like, oh man, this fucking, he's going to see how bad of a filmmaker he is. Wells walks away and says, this guy is perfect for the job. I'm hiring him on the spot to help me with some of my productions. So here's a great way of separating the two film viewers. You have your letterboxed reviewer who has existed throughout time. And then you have the critical <laughs> viewer, which is a filmmaker who is able to see past whatever imperfections that you might see. And he sees cinema. He sees that happening yep. on screen. He doesn't see someone who's good, who's craftsman. He sees cinema. And that is why he decides to eventually work with Franco. So, you know. And whether or not that's true is fun. And Thrower yeah. gets into it a little more uh, because, as we know with Franco, he liked to uh, use ecstatic truth, potentially, about a lot of things. And there's potential that it wasn't because he saw those movies and that it's because of similar cast and crew members crossing paths while Orson Welles was in Spain because that's how... Um, that's how... Uh, Fucking Jesus, where's my brain? Chimes at midnight and gets paid for is in Spain, which we'll yeah. get to here in a bit. Um, a lot but, of movies were shot in Spain at this time that are not yeah. Spanish because it's cheap. The, the The exchange rate is insane. Yep. And they, they had an open door policy that the Frank, the one thing the Franco regime did that you could say is a good thing is that they said, everyone come shoot here. We're going to give you insane tax breaks, blah, blah, blah. Yep. The way that also Franco, especially as he comes into himself with a movie like this, doesn't give a fuck <laughs> about throwing in everything he wants to to every single movie as if he'll never have another chance is just like Wells. Yep, you know, absolutely. they're very they're very similar filmmakers. And we'll get to it in a bit, but revisiting Chimes at Midnight in the, the chain of this stuff, it was not hard, save a couple things, to imagine Franco making that movie. <laughs> like, Speaking of taking the name of something out of something altogether, boy, do I wish we could just remove this final, well, not final, this next film we're going to talk about. And not for the reasons that I want to dismiss it, it more of that I wish this was something better than it was. Because it's certainly when I came to this one, this is one I had not seen, and I was so pumped. I was like, <laughs> hell Yeah. Jess Franco doing a Western. I gotta see this. It's called The Jaguar, also known as The Plainsman. There's another movie shot in 63. Didn't come out until 64, 65. Um, never was released in Madrid or Barcelona, only in Seville. So this is a movie concerning a, uh, a character named The Jaguar. And he's sort of basically he's like Zorro. <laughs> yeah. Franco so like the, yeah, we get this great opening, I think. I like this movie a lot more than John. But we get this opening where we Opening's see a small, a, a small child saved as a group of motherfuckers are uh, killing an entire family. And they want to kill that child too. But he's saved by someone we'll meet later. And then hop to however many years later, this guy is a legendary... Uh, Robin Hood type, um, you know, Zorro, Robin Hood, whatever you want to pick. Um, who, yeah, steals a bunch of shit with his friend and then distributes it to the people who need it in the realm. And that's where we start. 
Yes. I, yeah, so tell us why this is his best movie. <laughs> I see what could have been his best movie. What I see is the guy we were talking about who didn't get to make the movie about the revolts on the mahogany plantations uh, and got Orloff because this movie is, you know, it's it's pretty political. I mean, it deals with uh, the Guerra Federal, uh, the Federal War, which was a very bloody civil war in Venezuela. And it's uh, for their independence in 1821. Uh, this movie is supposed to take place in Venezuela. It does not. It take, it's shot in Spain. But uh, it's about these uh, the dominant conservative party who owns all the land and uh, the liberal party who just wants uh, greater autonomy. It's a Robin Hood sort of thing, a Zorro sort of thing. And what's sad is that this ex- this screenplay, um, which was credited to both Franco and his then wife named Nicole, eh, the politics don't really surface that much outside of Robin Hood going after the sheriff of Nottingham, the evil, cruel land barons. I don't know, some interesting cinematography i mean it's, he's certainly picturesque in certain spots but it 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 really doesn't uh it doesn't scratch the itch that one might think when it comes out the year before uh a fistful of dollars and you're like oh boy damn did franco beat sergio leone to the punch well no he did not no. <laughs> uh very <laughs> will's reaction he extremely did not <laughs> and again even though i i like this one much more than john that's a that would be <laughs> quite a quite a gag to try to make that fucking case jesus yeah no, this is a it feels it feels a little bit like a for hire movie but one that he was excited about but it also feels like and i and i, I don't know i haven't gone enough into the little bit that there is about this one for us to read um i don't know how much him and nicole like had to do if there was something in place where they had to hit certain beats and all of that because it very much feels like that like it feels like 80 percent a movie where they had to hit certain beats and they do them and sometimes it's you know sometimes it's interesting sometimes it's fun most of the time it's pretty standard but then that other 20 percent is enough to carry me through <laughs> um because we have uh, again, Daniel White, and I think the songs in this movie are fucking beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. That really is what helps me, especially. Oh my god, that the one they sing outside at the campfire is so lovely. I really think there's a great fight song, uh, and then of course the cabaret stuff is fucking awesome. Wow. And we have another woman named Lolita, the second time at this point <laughs> in, in his career. Um, but the cabaret stuff is really gorgeous. Really, really like that. And then the best, without spoiling it. Um, well, I guess one more political thing. Uh, Franco and Nicole both clearly think of cops and soldiers as the same, which means they're just fucking useless, evil idiots. Oh. Always love. Sure. And then the, without spoiling what happens, the ending of this one, I think, is a really kind of what you mentioned earlier with a different one of the films is a really interesting downer and yeah. there is no there is no music for this final confrontation that happens and it's really haunting and it feels really futile in a way that i think is important when it's a movie about a civil war um and so i do think i know i'm you know i'm i'm giving it more than i probably should but 
that final scene felt to me like it was from a different movie that maybe they wanted to make more. Uh, and I'm glad that, that still survives because I think it's a great way to end. And so if you, this one, my advice is cabaret scenes, enjoy the songs, get to that last scene. See you later. <laughs> Moving on. Thank God. Finally, yeah, to something we both on. We're going to move oh. on to something we both want to talk about. A movie that does actually not get, I feel it's just do amongst these early i have some theories why but um i don't know it's just him it truly is him so many fucking idiots are allergic to giving him a chance and so they scoff and then they pretend they've watched this movie i'm convinced of that too that there's a lot of pretending about franco yeah because if i don't i cannot comprehend how anyone who is a movie person, especially a horror person, especially horror from this era, could watch this movie and just walk away going, yeah, all right. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> I, I, I truly don't either. Especially like, okay, so here the movie is Dr. Orloff's Monster, the second film to use the Dr. Orloff character. He's not the main. <laughs> There's also another time where it's going to be misleadingly titled. <laughs> oh, it's uh, awesome as, though as what happens with a lot of european productions so yeah no this is uh this it deals with a character named dr fishman or F- fisherman and uh he does go visit a dr orloff or like his nephew or something right yeah so they allude to yeah they allude to dr orloff and his studies yes he's like a re- yeah weirdly do you hear him on the phone but you don't yeah. see him <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a downer ass plot it's about a oh so this dr fisherman this guy he fucking uh this all spins over the christmas holiday too which adds to this like downer downbeat perverted atmosphere and um, i want to show this on christmas so badly yeah well maybe we will but Control uh with passion land. <laughs> <laughs> This this uh this doctor, he has a niece, and the niece travels to spend the holidays with him. And this is pointing towards the dysfunctional, weird families of one of the great masterpieces that of Franco that we can't wait to get to is Virgin Among the Living Dead. Kind of see little shades of that here. And the her uncle is a doctor who may or may not have murdered her father his brother because he caught the brother cuckolding him no he definitely does okay he definitely all right i'm just trying to be mysterious (laughs) right fine he yes he gets cucked by his brother with his wife (laughs) (laughs) another uh, great dudes make insane choices because of having their pride wounded movie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he decides to kill him and then turn him into a like a completely devoid of thought manservant monster, Doctor Caligari. I mean, he's Morpho. He's just Morpho again. But his but his name is Andros. Yeah, and yeah, uh, which is also close to so stupidly close to Android, which like touches like that in this movie make the heaviness hit so much harder because there's like some silly throwaway things. 
that are great though because it just gives you like a second to breathe before the movie continues to pummel your soul <laughs> and he keeps this reanimated andros upstairs <laughs> in just a little <laughs> he's just standing he's standing, he's standing it's kind of glass like jar that turned to the door it's so yeah good. which is funny because this glass jar it doesn't hold him too well you know he's supposed to be... <laughs> yeah i'm seeing a lot of terence fisher's curse of frankenstein yeah uh in this in this character so yeah he Dare just I say it better so he learns all so he kills him uh but he keeps him alive as a walking cadaver enslaved by radio control something that he learns from dr orloff in the movie so he keeps him alive his wife who uh shades of hellraiser honestly and milligan milligan and, is fuck this yes yeah. jesus christ this woman just sits around drinking herself into an early grave because she is haunted by the memory of her former lover who it it's not known if she knows that he murdered this guy or something but maybe is what it seems i assume i think we're supposed to assume but what we're maybe supposed to assume or not assume is if she's aware he's being kept in the house that i don't know i don't think so I don't think so, but I don't yeah. know. That's why I'm thinking Milligan too, because Milligan loved like a, a wheelchair bound or just like such an alcoholic to the level that they like wouldn't fuck with stairs because they either couldn't or just couldn't be bothered. And she strikes me as that where she's like so tanked at all times. Like she's just not gonna look around. She Maybe, just stares yeah. off the walls, drunk as shit. Well, and he he because he does mention when the when she goes up there for the first time and walks in and I'm forgetting that actor's name who we should remember because he's in one million of these movies. Uh, but uh, remember when the niece walks in and he freaks out because he's like, no one comes up here. Right. And I think he means and I think he keeps it locked because the only reason she was able to go in is because he was in there. And so I think that room's truly locked and has been. <laughs> since yeah. Marcello Oroita Wargeri. Yeah, he is in um, almost every single movie in these first two episodes. Yeah, I know, he is. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes good parts, but he's always there. Um, the one thing, though, with the, the locked door is that the the servant has the only key. Yeah, yeah. That's where it's That's like, true. it's, and this could be uh, oversights, maybe, but... Well, I was, was going to say, we probably should be smart enough already at this point to not get into talking about plot stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It really doesn't matter to him. And it kind of just gives this might be him just pulling further and further away from plot. And he's starting to learn that he likes doing that because, you know, that absence of plot is the exact thing that makes this uh, later phase of him so delicious. So, and I think, I, that, and, yeah. This one's so exciting, too, because we'll talk about it later on a different episode that I alluded to earlier. But outside of the Spanish cut of Sadistic Baron von Klaus, the way this one starts is the first time we get full ass art house movie, Jess. Where, yeah. like, truly, like the start of this movie straight up feels like fucking Hungarian New Wave or, you know, even like early ish Bergman stuff. Like, it's really even a little Japanese new wave at times. Cause it's so wild and just what we're given to look at and the, the way the sound works. Like this is our first full ass just going art house to open the movie. And it's so sick. 
I, I agree. I would say this oh, is, uh, yeah, this and uh, Rafifi really, he's yeah, he's pushing that uh, impressionist button a bit more. Well, I don't know if it's impressionist at this point, but it's like he's certainly engaging with art cinema and trying to find that freedom. The thing that he is going to constantly keep looking for is to yep. get freer and freer and freer and freer. So yeah, um, that's the plot. We, we're not gonna, again. We're not going to spoil anything because this is one of those movies that yeah, I wouldn't listen to what people say that it is not without its charms or even that it's incoherent because I oh, know again, even Brewer called it like an incoherent, movie. and it's like I don't really? know if incoherent. I, I think it's uh, I, I yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, the downbeat Christmas atmosphere just adds to this lonely um, wind blowing outside and the cold. You're st- oh, it's just it's creepy, but it just it, it's, there's like a loneliness to it that um, yeah. I don't yeah. know. That's not this is not incoherent at all. No. If we if if Thrower's nice enough to come on, that's the first thing we're going to do is come at him with that. Tell us now. <laughs> <laughs> break down how this is that's why he starts it the way he does with the those sequence of images in a very much art way because he's letting you know what kind of movie you're about to see you're not watching a universal monster picture here that where the plot is the lead what the lead is is faces and lighting and daniel white's music yet again and yep. how it all talks to each other like he's letting he's that's another thing with jess is when he changes his style, he lets the audience know, not directly, but you know what I mean? Like, because the way oh. his movies start, when he's starting a new phase, they start in a way that clearly that you know is what, you, what, what, what you're in for. And yeah. this one feels very much like that. Um, yeah. I agree. I agree. And also, you know who would say the same thing? Mr. Orson Welles. So That's right now we are... In 1964-1965, Wells is about to shoot Treasure Island and another mm-hmm. movie called Chimes at Midnight. Well, buddy, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? We get to this point. Treasure Island, we don't need to go into because it never got finished. There's a great segment in uh, Thrower's book, you know, that covers a bit more. Um, but Jess was working on that with him as well. Um, that uh, never happened. We never uh, got Treasure Island, which truly, yeah, breaks our souls. Just imagine Orson Welles and Jess Franco's Treasure Island. <laughs> in color at that time, like that that yeah. European color system that they use, it's a little off, almost looks a little more like two-strip. Yeah, like sickly, all them sickly colors. Please give it to us. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a bummer. But... We do get Chimes of Midnight, which oh, we do is get a Chimes of Midnight. Movie. Yep. Which, as we started to talk about a little bit before when we brought up Wells, it makes perfect sense that they found each other at this point in their careers. Because I, since I was going in order rewatching these, because I watched Dr. Orloff immediately into Chimes at Midnight, I was fucking blown away. I was blown away how similar their visual styles are. Their goals are different. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wells is not, um, I don't think, as political of a filmmaker. Um, you know, I think he's I think he's more interested in revisiting, you know, classic tropes 
uh, of humans and exploring them for the current time and say, you know, that kind of thing, which isn't bad. I love it. Obviously, Orson Welles is a great filmmaker. Sure. Uh, but the way they were doing it, and it, I think is, is very important here, uh, because Chimes of Midnight slapped me because it's been so long. I forgot. Like, I forgot how quickly you forget how they talk. Right. Because if you're, you know, if you're not in Shakespeare mode, it can take a second, but it doesn't with that movie. And it was crazy how quickly it didn't fucking matter what they were saying, because visually he's doing everything. And it makes sense. That's why he wanted Jess Franco to help him do that. Right. Because so, Franco understands that. Right. And we're not going to get into Chimes at Midnight. If you don't know what that movie is, then stop this podcast <laughs> and go get it and watch it. Um, on. Yes. But Jess was hired to basically handle the uh, the battle scenes, which are kind of the most truly one of the most memorable things about that are these insanely realistic depictions of battle that it would take a while before someone shot battle scenes with this kind of like rawness and this like Eisensteinian sort of handling of montage. It's uh, it's one of the greatest sequences ever. And if now that you know that James or uh, not James. <laughs> Jess Franco is a part of that, then uh, you have to now move Jess up just a little bit. Yeah. On your Even just uh, for the gag, the way the way he shot the gag of Orson's character Falstaff hiding in the bushes <laughs> throughout the whole battle, but cutting from like a really funny slapstick joke like that back to these fucking brutal, horrible almost handheld at times battle scenes that are ju that just gets muddier and muddier and stinkier and stinkier and more and more painful and just like pathetic too they're really pathetic and it's great because it's one of the few times especially at that time war was shown as, as pathetic as it is yes <laughs> or it's and not some like beautiful uh you know just beautiful thing it's like fucking it's gross it's a bunch of people just in the mud trying to fucking kill each other with mallets quicker so two things that he is going to come into contact with on this that's going to change his career he is going to meet producer harry allen towers and that's a name just put that in your put a pin in that we will get to that on the next episode but uh, that's where he meets that man and also where he probably realized what he wanted and what he wanted was smaller crews with whatever means he could come across, working with friends, people he's worked with a bunch of times. And that's what Wells did. And that's what he takes away from this. And uh, I think like uh, Wells uh, or even like someone like John Ford, these people that loved working with their same people over and over, they want to sit around with them and chill with them, drink, eat, smoke, fuck these people. And uh, it creates an atmosphere that most films don't get because they, they 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 surrender to the art of communion that is necessary to make a movie. And when, you know, it's like in baseball, when I grew up, we were number one in our town and actually the, the entire state for two years. Uh, no big deal. But um, the reason why we were so good is because no one actually gave a shit about the game. We played because we cared, but we just liked hanging out with each other. Yeah. We truly just went to hang out with each other. And because that anxiety was lifted from just hanging out with your friends, we were well, we were undefeated for two years. So that is how 
not, not a big deal. You know, I was a baseball star. I just wanted to point that out. But um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do this for Will. This is how you maintain that incredible winning average is by being with the people you know and trust so that you don't have to worry about little erroneous complications that come out of the uh, sometimes impossibility of working with a large group of people. So um, moving on, though, because we got to move this along. We're going to move on oh. to 1965. Another if another uh this 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 is my might might be the one in fact of everything we're talking about in terms of like it says everything he's going to do it does it it doesn't flirt with it like the other things we're talking about it does it and that is the diabolical doctor z aka uh, aka in the grip of the maniac fucking Another- amazing uh, yeah, that's hard art house best mode hard <laughs> art house Woo! this man said all right i just did dr orloff let me uh kick that up a notch and he's like man my buddy orson showed me this thing that i thought i had been doing but turns out i didn't know how to do a tracking shot yet let me make a movie based around that <laughs> and boy does he uh oh Oh yeah, I mean this movie is reeks of professionalism, even if you don't want to say that. I mean, here's something that you can't get away from. He's working with Jean-Claude Carrier, uh, who had just done Boonwell's Diary. Yeah, done Diary of a Chambermaid, would go on to do maybe one of my favorite films, probably top ten of all time, The Obscure Object of Desire. He would just do everything, all the great Belle du Jour, Phantom of Liberty, which we showed once. All these movies that, uh, you know, are criterion stamps, you know, in lends an air of insane credibility to someone like like Franco. In fact, Carrie did one of my favorites. Uh, this uh, I don't know if you've seen this one. Well, uh, the 72 crime thriller, The Outside Man. No, right. Very down. good. Very good movie. Uh you know, it's like uh, Jean-Louis uh, Trignat, uh, Angie Dickinson, and Margaret are in it, though. Roy Scheider's in it. Wow, what a failure I am. Yeah, you don't watch enough movies. That's the problem with you. Is you I, see, I really don't, do. That's what happens when I find out about something like that that I should love. It means I'm doing a bad job. Well, you are. And, uh, yeah, you're not good at your job. Uh, this guy also, funny enough, that uh, we're bringing up Jacques Derre, who uh, directed this movie, to tie it all together, did one of the other Rafifi sequels that was not connected to the original Rafifi. He did Rafifi in Tokyo. Anyway, but he kind of specialized in uh, French crime thrillers. Um, but anyway. Do we, think, do we think that it was him or Jess or them putting their mischievous little fucking giggling asses together? that decided early on in this movie to do a it's hard to even call it a joke because it's just so direct but i love that the man escaped joke the person oh yeah i mean and there's some there's another yeah i i happen to i bet it was both of them i bet they both thought that would be a very funny 
thing. Well, yeah. Jess loves that throughout his career to just directly say a name and then play it as a joke. So. <laughs> it's a very good Dardian tactic, which would uh, which proves that this man was going to France <laughs> to see movies. Because uh-huh. he'll do that even further with something like Succubus, which really adhere to yep. these like early Godard oh, wow. things. But Jean-Claude Carrier, though, uh, actually extending into eventually where we'll go, he does, I think it's 1981, The uh, House of Lost Women. That story oh. is credited to Jean-Claude um, Carrier, but he did not take credit, probably because he was like, <laughs> you know, pretty famous at that time, which is weird because that's the one movie in the Jess Franco filmography that you could probably show to people who are not genre heads or Franco heads. And they'd be like, that was an amazing film. I don't know. You don't it think it's pr- pretty hard with the incest and gleefully. So I think it's so art house, that movie. It's it is, so but art house. It is, but it's still executed in our sweet baby Franco's very unique way that I think, uh, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think it's too because there's only there are very it few. It has a flair of the Almodio Var. Yes, but why did you add an I? I don't know, because I have to um, pee. here explain your thing and I'll pee again. Pee. You pee like every 10 minutes. Because I'm drinking drink water like crazy today. I quit it. That's why I drink so little water, then I can pee twice a day. Yeah, but you didn't didn't get a brilliant workout this morning, and like I did. Uh, Of course not, because I love myself. Yeah, well, (laughs) this is why one of us started the day positively, and the other started it. (laughs) Hey, I did. I did walk five miles this morning while I was texting you, so that counts. Um. Oh yeah. Okay, so I'll just keep going while you pee. Some shit that I think is very important in Dr. Z, Dr. Z, if we're in England, um, that I that I haven't seen come up necessarily yet that becomes a very big part of Franco. Um, there's a great moment where this couple is watching a certain thing happen, but the way Franco shoots it, it's crystal clear that we are that couple. Yeah. And he puts it in there. And that's when he starts to really directly talk about what it means to want to see this kind of thing and how he's showing it versus how we're seeing it. Um, and that was exciting. Cause I also didn't notice that before till this rewatch, um, yeah. the, the intense power of just objects really ramp up in this one with the mannequins and the wheelchair. Um, there's a lot of his, again, you know, he's leaning into this art house stuff uh, where he's like, Oh yeah, shit. If I just show, that wheelchair for two seconds longer than I should. It's really going to pack a punch <laughs> uh, for what it means. Um, let's see. We have the machinery sounds in this that are just, that's music all its own, man. Outside well, of the dance, as always, the, the machine sounds, I would buy that isolated score <laughs> on a record. Well, I was going to say, I, I think he was probably listening to like the GRM in France and stuff that Pierre yeah. Schaefer was doing with the advance of music concrete uh, because yeah, you really just kind of have this like beautifully droning mechanical sound that is not really looking forward to what certain composers are going to do. I mean, I guess that kind of mixes with the Daniel white, but it is interesting side uh, alongside that we are 
you know, having someone who is pulling from like what shit that like Pierre Henry and Pierre Schaefer were doing at that time. So clearly, yeah. as we'll find out with well, Sucky, this guy loves the art world and he's a yeah. part of all of it. The stalking sequence in this is very important. Oh, he God, the one in the fog. Things, and it's, it's, it's like it's a amazing. giallo coming to, I mean, yeah, that's again, like, again yeah. where's our dude's credit in the realm? But whatever, wow. that's what we're here for. Wow. But the stalking, um, of course, masks again, absolutely incredible. Um, he's doing a really interesting thing on a thematic level with this one that I hadn't noticed before. Um, and the easiest way to say it is that morality is physical, but just exploring that wonderful science fiction idea of the whole linchpin of the story, right? Of a of mm-hmm. a, a person being able to figure out which part of the brain causes evilness and be yeah. able to turn it on or off at will and that's huge in his whole career um close-ups also we are really starting to get into stellar land of just close-ups and how much he would start to use that uh for everything you know but they're so uh they're just so perfect in this and of course we have the shit with the spider and miss muerte's performance uh, um mm. that is just like sorry guys that's the best little chunk of performance art i've seen in my 35 years y'all can y'all can keep everything there I'll are take so that. many oh 100 there's so many amazing set pieces in this movie that it's yes. really hard the to like scene? yeah oh my god the theater scene that killed me with like low budget i was blown away being reminded how good he is at saving money because that morgue scene i'm talking about at the end where mm-hmm. literally all it is the white wall and the shadows of what they do you don't see a goddamn thing that was probably his house you don't see a thing except the shadow of what is happening with these people but it's like a, a crucial moment in the film but it works brilliant amazing brilliant. Well. brilliant but you know that day yeah to save money he was like no nah, let's just just shadow it man it'll work better <laughs> Which is closer oh. to like a German uh, expressionist early yeah. Universal Monsters thing. So again, if you um, stuck and study, if you study the folks that came before you, it's only going to make your work better. To say nothing of the mind control, all the stuff that is going to be taken forward even more. The 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 claws of Miss Muerte, oh. which pointing straight forward to our favorite murderous bird bitch in the erotic rites of Frankenstein. Right. So, okay. <laughs> Moving on to Attack of the Robots, the next film he's going to make in 1965, which is basically going to take the idea of ta- of diabolical Doctor Z and do it in a dumber way. With a great title, though, the original title is Cards on the Table, and that's and great- a sick title. Yeah, for this spy journey. Sure. Yes. So. <laughs> He is he is taking this idea and he is kind of doing his film noir thing, kind of doing his spy thing. Hey, here he comes, Mr. Al Piera. He's here. He's finally made it. The Interpol agent is uh, is attempting to stop some robots. And it is not a shock that AIP picked this movie up and called it Attack of the Robots. That makes a a ton of sense um yeah i mean it's another comic strip style thing the pacing on this one is rough what really i don't know oh interesting really oh i think this movie is a fucking breeze i love this one it's a breeze compared to where we've been but 
coming no, off. No, but it's also shot so well. Okay, and I think true. Wait, it is shot extremely well. Right? I said, you know who wrote this one? Jean Claude oh. Carrier, my dude. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I mean, listen, even some. And that's of- why they get. That's why they get that great dig in where they <laughs> make a joke about Marguerite Duras to put you to sleep. That's so funny. Okay, that is <laughs> that is funny. Considering his uh, his proximity to Godard around this time, basically taking his Lemmy Caution character, the Eddie Constantine yeah. character, and just putting him in this. I don't dislike this movie. It's just that, well, once we get to some movies coming up that I don't want to spoil... I will explain why I, this movie falls short for me, but um, well, I think all right. Quickly, I do like the works. scene where he says, "There's someone says, like, oh, he caught Paul Vogel." Yeah, yeah. It's funny because that will end up being uh, the villain from Exorcism, the sadist of yep. Bob, So there's a there's a great Joan of Arc joke. There's an oddly like a there's an LBJ portrait on the wall, which is really funny. Uh, oh, the yeah. Palm is music is fucking sick um this movie basically it's i i just think it's so funny of a concept too uh because i mean like john said it's kind of a reworking of the one before but this woman is trying to control through interpol and through the cia which i love because again jess and jean claude clearly couldn't think less of any of these people uh, but controlling this insane army of people around the world to be their assassins. But the weirdest part is, for whatever reason, they have this specific blood type, uh, which they call Resus Zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just so it's like type O. It's like type O blood. And for whatever reason, they have decided to gather an army of white people that who have this blood type who react to this thing they do to them that for some reason darkens their skin. So yeah. while they're out there being assassins, their skin is darker. But then if they die immediately, they turn completely pale and white again. And everyone's like, what? Zoinks. <laughs> it's, it's just like a dope Scooby-Doo episode. I love it. <laughs> but you would definitely say that Jean-Claude Carrier is letting, he's, 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 honing, he's phoning this one in just a little bit. I wouldn't say phoning in, but I would definitely say he wrote it quick. Okay. All right. <laughs> There's a, well, it's important. It's a, <laughs> sure. phoning, in, phoning in is just for a paycheck. I don't think, because he's still having fun here, and there's still good stuff, and it's still really mischievous. The kid spy is great in this one and the next one. Um, I don't know. I just think I a, a breezy, like a breezy spy movie was really digging jabs. I love, you know? Right. I think it's fun. Side of the honestly, outside of the the whatever color face you want to call it, black face or brown face, outside of that, I heartily recommend this one to people pretty often. All right. Well, it certainly does. Okay, <laughs> I'll change all my things I said because I like this movie better than the next two we're gonna talk about. That can't be true. Both of it's them. One right, let's sure. Oh, here's no one for sure, and then one I'll give you my reasons, but it's not as black and white. Okay, let's go to the next one. Okay, the next one is oh boy, Golden Horn, aka boarding school for spies, aka residence for spies. <sighs> okay, Eddie Constantine's back. <laughs> His back is Dan Layton playing the, playing the organ. Playing the organ. <laughs> And he's uh, trying to unmask a, a traitor within the CIA. 
something. I don't know. Uh, well, he gets, he gets, yeah, he gets sent over. Um, he gets sent over to, uh, <laughs> yeah, basically just try to take somebody down, find out who the mole is. Um, it's not as much fun as the last one because the last one is so biting because Interpol and the CIA sent Eddie Constantine knowing he has race who's zero blood type because they don't care if he lives or dies, just like with all the people who work for them. This one doesn't have that bite. So no. similar, I, similar setup, but this is one of the first <laughs> that I truly did not like it along with the queen of Tabarine. They're both for the same reasons. They're extremely de- reliant on talkiness. Yeah. And, well, he hates, there's nothing he hates more than talking. Um, yeah. It's again, like, yeah. 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 I mean, he said that so much about even, uh, about Eric Romare, who I love. Yep. Um, but he did not like him. He said, it's just, people talking and you know this one really uh the things that usually the characters that do the best in his movies the women don't really have anything to do in this movie <laughs> Not they, a lot. say some lines and then they walk off screen i don't know except it, the, i do love the i do love the like the the headmistress or whatever she's pretty awesome and she gets she gets she gets a little her character at least is a character <laughs> sure. I also like <laughs> he says that uh that he's the cousin of Louis Armstrong. Yeah, dude, there's still it's the little it's again. I'm I'm with you. This is this is definitely without a doubt the worst movie of this first batch, in my opinion. Um and it's the only one in this whole batch that I actually say is a bad movie. But the things that do come through again, they get me through because the the one cabaret scene we do get is fucking great. The music is still great. We still get some just building where he starts to shoot through glass quite a bit in this one. It's not a fish tank yet, but he's yeah. shooting through the glass. And I will, you know, don't listen if you don't want it spoiled because I'm going to spoil the ending of this because the best part of this movie and a thing I think just <laughs> you have to get through the rest of the movie to get to that point. So this is another this is another one I would say too because I do think the the beginning is really funny the UN shit because he portrays them all as like such goofy dumbasses. Um, but this is another one that I do think. Don't worry, I don't think it's secretly good, but I do think would benefit also from being able to actually see it in its aspect ratio and with how it was supposed to look. It still would not be good. Don't get me it wrong. It will not but be a good movie, a but it will look better. Which, yeah. brings, right. us, I'll, I'll, which I'll. brings us to the, the next one, Lucky the Inscrutable, which is that movie done better, in my opinion. No. It's a spy thing, but done, <laughs> done through the lens of just a danger, diabolique, spoof, parody thing. I mean, it is it's not the same movie because the other one takes itself too seriously this movie does not take itself seriously this is through and through a parody of the spy genre of the superhero at the time genre yeah yeah it, it, but it but what it does is it goes towards that this period of franco shooting in color and i think that's like that's its best aspect is from lucky the inscrutable for me is there's some amazing photography in this in this movie despite Gorgeous. your mileage for being able to go along with uh dated 60s biff bang pow hysterics and shenanigans 
So if you also have a soft spot for Bond-esque capers like Will does, then this movie is for you. I do not actually. Why I love this movie is because this is a better spoof than all the spoofs we all fucking talk about. Especially within this realm. Austin Powers wishes, Casino Royale, the Peter Sellers wishes, the OSS movies, Naked Gun, all that shit wishes it were half as funny as this. And I like some of those. Sorry, the Naked Gun is not as funny as this? Nope. You have stepped on your dick, my friend. There's I the, I, I'm, gonna put, I'm gonna put a sound in here for the Will stepped on his penis thing. Is, this is better. You're this out is of better. Room. You had you this could have is, convinced me if you had not said something like that. That's insane. Sorry, and you know I love those. Well, yeah, it's insane that this isn't talked did. about. I thought you did love them. I do, but You're guess what? Is go ahead. Guess what's better? Lucky the fucking inscrutable. You're oh my god, the title cards, the title cards are hysterical. The speech bubbles are hysterical. He's ri- and it's also not just a spy spoof. He's also spoofing Santo, and that's amazing. Like there's so everything, but it all works. We also get Jess's best acting role for a long time. He is so funny. Plays different characters at will and he also has look, I will even say <clears throat> this is a good test. And I understand when people don't like spoof movies. That's okay. But if you like spoof movies, this one's fucking awesome. And there's an amazing line where <laughs> Jess pops up in a train car and says, are you hungry? Ooh, I'm Hungarian. <laughs> All right. It's so funny. What are you talking about? Uh, I, uh, all of this is making me feel pretty okay with my I'm looking for what Stephen Thrower said, and this, I think, is extremely uh, hitting our point. He says, although Lucky the Inscrutable is hailed in some quarters, Will's quarters, as a pop art comedy triumph, and Franco himself often declared it one of his favorites, I'm afraid I must swim against the tide and say I find the film almost unwatchable and excruciating ear pudding of failed gags and strained irony. Now, I'm not that far. I'm not that far. Do I find it excru- some excruciating Euro pudding? You Which part? Give me an example of the whole movie. The, literally the whole movie. The scene where they're like fighting around that woman. They're like, oh, what do you want to go? Well, let's step outside. It's this that classic dated. <laughs> I, these, it, doesn't, it doesn't work on me. Pure comedy. Why the fuck does Naked Gun work and not this, though? Truly. Because Naked Gun has brilliant timing and satire and has not dated in terms of its jokes. This movie, though it is charming... Well, give, it, give it 50 more years and then tell me, man. We've this already given it open. close to that. We've already almost given it that long. That's like... Naked it's Gun? probably 40 years, 30 years young at this point. Like, it's like... Yeah, but this is a lot older. time to molt. Okay, Lucky the Inscrutable molted probably within three years after it came out. You're so wrong. All right. Friends out there listening to this, watch Lucky the Inscrutable if you haven't. And everyone write in hate letters to John to let him know he just hates comedy. This is, I truly, I was really excited for you to watch this too, because I honestly thought we were going to be the same. And I even thought, I even wrote down, I even wrote down. Because the duo of him and his sidekick, who, by the way, <laughs> the sidekick gets like slapped or fucked by everyone. In the yeah, which is funny. That's- <laughs> so funny. And one of my favorite lines, I thought of us because I thought you would love this movie. Uh, <laughs> every time, every time Lucky makes the assistant 
or the sidekick do or not do something. He says, but why? And he says, because you're prettier. <laughs> Listen, I, it's not the worst of this group. I certainly. I March got me too. <laughs> this is what I have a problem with when Lucio Fulci was doing those Franco and Chicho fucking things. What are they like? Zero zero two two operation Luna sucking suck. Well, those those aren't as good as this because Franco is a funny person. Fulci is not a funny person. Okay, that is also true. I will say that this <laughs> is better than those. You know what? Just for you, I'll say this is the best of all those mid sixties Euro spy spoof movies. I will be at peace then with that. And we also get to be mildly controversial here. Uh, in this Jess Franco movie and shockingly not played uh, for a big deal. It's like almost a throwaway joke, but we we find out that there's a, <laughs> a, a character in this movie this whole time. Uh, no one sees it coming. It was a popular thing. Not quite yet, but it would be later to do like a, a trans reveal in a movie, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. As a gag. The way it's done in this one is so fast and just moves on so quick. It's almost not offensive. And it's also hilarious that this trans person is a Nazi in their final their final moment before they die as they fall. I like <laughs> Those kind of touches, I did not almost turn it off like I did Residence for Spies. I saw it the whole way through and I was like, cool. Dude, a microfiche dealers? Come on, that's so right, funny. Fine. I like to, for the sake of moving on, I like the movie. Sorry, let's go, let's go, let's go. Oh, God, all I right. I love this movie. <laughs> all right, we'll love this movie. Now let's get into it. Now we can agree. Yes, finally the agreements will start, although I'm a little scared with these two lives movies about your level of enthusiasm for them as compared to mine, but we'll find out. Don't worry. You'll be okay. Okay. Now we just want to... This will not be a hard one to talk about. 1967, Succubus. One of the key texts for for Franco. So this movie was shot early spring in 67. It didn't come out. Let's see. It it premiered in the U.S. in 68 in April. Uh, Italy. Okay, so it opened in Rome in 1971. And then in France, wow. 1972. That's crazy. Hmm. Well, and I, I probably, I think we could probably figure out why when we get into this movie. This is a movie <laughs> that I would not be shocked if people hated when it came out. That wow. being said, <laughs> this movie is great. <laughs> oh, it's incredible. Can I make one connection before sure. we get into it proper? Yes. We'll go into it further. But what's interesting, Franco following. Lucky the Inscrutable with Succubus couldn't be more different, right? Presentation, tone, content, everything. But one of the things we'll get into is that it would be a uh, it would be a mistake because it misses really what's happening here. But on the surface, you definitely could call Succubus a mean spirited spoof of art house films and culture of that time. You could, and I think so. I think it makes sense that he came from getting it all out so you know on like so ridiculously and luckily inscrutable to then come to this and be like all right i'm still i'm still mad and i've still got some shit to make fun of but we're going to deliver it a little different this time i don't know how much this is a parody of art house cinema i think it is and it also isn't 
Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. in the way that the best ones are both, like yeah. when a when a true master can, because again, that's why it's not a full on parody. That's the wrong word for this. It's just because I'm thinking of it from the one before. But in the in the way that true masters can do it, actually, you know, have the have your cake and eat it too proper. This is one of those moments. I think. Yes. And this I is, do want to laugh at you at you all a bit, but also check out how you all could be doing it. Absolutely. So this movie came together when one of the producers. Okay, so when Lucky Excrutable did terrible at the box office, just died at the box. So <laughs> shocking. So the producer then <laughs> put Franco in touch with an actor named Adrian Hoven. Um, who'd formed a production company called Aquila Films with a couple other actors and a wealthy-ass friend named Pierre Camanchinici and <laughs> something like that. And they put together the Aquila Films. And Jess is going to do three films for them. Succubus, which we're going to get into. And then the ones we're going to end on, Sadista Radica, a.k.a. The Two Undercover Angels and Kiss Me Monster. Now, where we get to those succubus as will says this there is something of a um a riffing of the current art house market going on here that is undeniable i also think that he loves godard so much that he loves when godard does these like word association games so mm-hmm. there is a long lengthy scene of howard vernon and our main woman engaging in this um the telling scene is when or i think it's her um no it's she's first at the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist oh. excuse the word association then he shows figures of dracula the wolfman or frankenstein monster the phantom all these characters and, the well, I'll get to that. and then she, he says do these characters scare you and she says no but i feel a, a tenderness or something for them which is so key to Jess Franco. That is extremely <laughs> deep. But then he points to Godzilla and then he goes, What about this animal? <laughs> Which is funny. Because I do not oh. think that, I bet I bet uh I bet Franco could appreciate the artistic color of someone like Ishiro Honda, but for sure could not give a shit about the Godzilla movies. I wonder if you even watched them, honestly. I feel like that would be the way you almost turned off uh, residents <laughs> for spies. I feel like that's what he did every time he tried to go see another Godzilla movie. He was like, ma. <laughs> Gonna have to assume that that's probably true. Yeah. I, I, yeah. He couldn't be further from his interests. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. These had nothing to get him excited. But what Succubus does is it really starts separating him from what he's been doing into who we are going to see. The, even more than Diabolical Dr. Z. This is oh, the one where all is, those moments... Yeah, yeah, All those moments come together in this. If only for a moment, because the next two are going to bear less of this influence, but they're still... Whatever. What he's realizing with Succubus is something that he probably really wants to do. And that is also a movie where the narrative is extremely fuzzy so fuzzy i would not blame anyone for being extremely confused by this movie the first time they see it well if you just logline it then that's all you need to know and i love that because that's where he was headed to a land where you could logline most of the best movies he would make 
and granted, obviously there's lots more to them, but right. Like if you wanted someone to not get confused in this movie, you just say, look at the title. Yeah. She works for Satan, runs into some folks. That's what happens. <laughs> there's really there, nothing else. A lot more matters, but nothing else matters as far as plot. That's Everything true. Else, it all is within truly just that little. That's it. That's that's all that actually happens in this, technically. But the world opens for Franco here. A hundred percent. And also, this is like where the opening shows our main character whipping and flaying some people in a torture scene that is going to show up again and again and again and again and again and ad nauseum again and again in Franco's yep. filmography. Now, I think what's interesting. What is that scene though? Yeah. So that scene is this character whipping and torturing these people only to be revealed that it's a charade and it's a nighthouse cabaret act. Boom. Oh, that's crazy uh, to do that level of self-awareness at this point in your career. And also we got another person to take to task. Brandon De Palma, you also love Jess Franco. Oh, for sure. <laughs> There's another guy that does not like to talk about his influences. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that opening really spells out an attitude that you can take for the rest of his filmography, where if you find this torture to be suffocating or brutal or hard to watch you just gotta remember it's people playing around they're just playing around and honestly the effects are so dopey and the dubbing sometimes so horrible on when the whip hits the skin that you just have to go along with it in its pervy pleasures and it's uh it's sadistic jokes that's what he's trying to do and it, and it could also be uh yeah that's what he likes to do to his audience so that opening is a great way to read these horrible, not even horrible. They're not that horrific torture scenes that show up in his movies. They're not that horrific. Rarely. There are some we'll get to that I understand when people don't want to fuck with them, but those are rare. Couple, yeah. yeah. And really, Lena, Lena brings that heat for most of us. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's true. But logic <laughs> here is just almost completely out the window as... Yeah, a woman might be controlled by the devil, and uh, her husband might be involved. Boy, the last... Let's just say that there are shades of... Well, deep shades of vertigo. Oh. Even she references, was I in San Francisco once? Because this movie is this character trying to figure out their identity. And the paranoia that goes through these events that are happening, the ending is haunting. I, that ending leaves me a little cold and oh, in yeah. like a shivery way. I got to say, too, uh, one more little shit kicker moment. Revisiting it this time, and I, this hadn't, I hadn't thought about it before. I should have, but as this ended, and I was also so chilly and all this stuff, even though I am a fan of most of his work, all I could think during all of this, I was like, man, Antonioni's movies that try to focus on a similar sort of thing really missed the mark. <laughs> I was like, I was like, man, Red Desert is undeniably a very special and important movie. I will give it that. And I do, I do really like that movie. But the whole time, as soon as this ended, I was like, 
I think every time I want to watch Red Desert, I just want to suck at this. He does yes. it so much faster, so much more interesting, and dare just, I say more elegant? Well, I mean, the wrong word, but maybe not elegant, but I see what you're saying. I, I mean, I'm trying to get across. Like it's well, just think of think of shining sex. Think of shining sex. We're gonna get to when you get through that first 15, 20 minutes where Lena's getting oiled. Oh my God, does that does that outdo Antonioni more than? Yeah. I mean, hey, there might be some of us that feel that uh, Zabriskie point was the only time he had something really worthwhile to say. But um, Except for identification of a woman. Come on. I still like the Cleese and all of them. I, I, I hold a special place in my heart for when I first came across him. But your point yeah. is taken. He is doing something here that is at least more interesting than what. Oh, then we'll say this. than what Antonioni was doing until that point. And even to that point, Renee. I mean. Last year at Marion yeah. Bed, amazing. Not, can't say anything bad about that. That movie clearly yeah. haunts Jess Franco. Um, but in terms of like what he was doing in the 60s, I think he does it I better. Feel like this movie, I feel like this movie is designed to make fun of a uh, fucking, uh, what's it called? Uh, what's the time travel one called? Je t'aime, je t'aime. Yeah, I feel like this movie. <laughs> it, I think Jitim Jitim came out after it, though. Oh, no, no, it did. It did. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. just one. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, before we go further on that stuff, I want to highlight who plays whether or not they're the devil in this. Yeah. Because that's also important in this scene. One of my favorite uh, definite sleazebags, by the way. This guy, even though he's smarter than he was given credit often, he is a lot closer to what people accuse Franco of being. He can be a leerer for sure, but he's also smarter than just being that. But anyway, Michel Lemoyne or Lemoyne, yeah. I don't know how you say this. The Mephistophelian character of the movie. Yes. He is an amazing filmmaker in his own right, not to mention actor. But if you have, I, I imagine a lot of our listeners have seen Seven Women for Satan. Um, but his sex comedies and drama are also great. The Bitches is awesome. But he was huge in the realm of guiding horror and uh, borderline sex films into the art world in France in particular. And so it makes a lot of sense that him and Franco link up at this point because they have similar interests of, you know, pushing the boundaries of these sorts of genres that were just considered, you know, dime movies or whatever at this point. So just had to just had to mention my dude. Cause oh, it, yeah, it just, all of them hanging out would have been like the scenes in this movie, except not intolerable. I love when they just speed list like Faulkner, Capote, Henry Miller, Camus. Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> and it's also, yeah. It's hard to tell if he's engaging with that or if he's engaging and making fun of it. I don't know, but uh, I think it's both because he's I think he's hyper educated in the world of culture and art. And I think when you get to the point he was probably at where right, like at this point in his life, he has access to everything. And so I think he probably got to the point where he was like, I, I can hang out with anyone in the world I want and like all these crazy places. And turns out they don't have anything to say because they all just say these buzzwords. Yeah, because you know? I like the Nietzsche Hegel moment is for that, and even the Chicago scene. <laughs> oh yeah, but then she'll say, then he'll say something like Fritz Long, and it'll be like cinema, you know. Well, like that's the only direct. Wait, he says Long Godard, not outmoded, fast yeah. release. 
That's right. In Boonwell, <laughs> too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not out. Yeah. yeah. So good. Um, and yeah. Then, but then you also yeah. hear him talk about certain sadomasochistic things that are going to keep start popping up. He talks about the story of O. Mm-hmm. He talks about Justine, yeah. where she says oh. her associated word is love. Now, yep. there, stick a pin in that before we get to the thing that's going to really, we're going to have to turn the AC on in our both of our places when we start talking about Jess and Lena's relationship. But that, yeah. if you want to know maybe how this guy looks at love, not, not literally with Justine, but to a certain degree, I, I found and that. I think, really, oh, good. No, and then like when they say like Gamora, Gamora, you know, like this the Sadian influences are are there. Like it's 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 gonna take a big part of this story very soon. Uh, of the story of Jeff Franco. Yep. And there's the moment where they directly say instead of saying life or death, they say love or death. Yeah. And I think that's also a very crucial skeleton key to his whole world really like people you know would often think just this crazy sleazebag smut peddler but truly this dude that's it for him because there is no life without love for just franco as silly as it sounds it really is like there is no life without love so it really is love or death and love happens to also include making movies yeah absolutely um also the main character's name lorna now yeah (laughs) <laughs> that name might pop up again soon. Uh, again, you know, these are the games that he's playing and this, uh, you know, his mar- his own Marvel Cinematic Universe that he he is creating. <laughs> That's really um, true. But the, and the, the visuals in this, I think it's good to not go into all of them so y'all can experience it if you haven't seen them. Um, but I just wanted to, we do finally get a fish tank. He shoots through a fish tank. Yes, we do. One of the sex that becomes a thing. He also says in another moment where you're trying to figure out which is serious and which is not. He also says poets all failed at capturing love. Which is wild, a wild statement, but it's amazing. But yeah, the think author that one, of Justine. Uh-huh. Well, but did but did they nail it or did they were they starting to get to something that he had to come and get across? That's what I'm wondering. Is he one of those people who is like, look, the poets did their job, but we have to finish it. <laughs> and that's actually a great you know? point there. Yes. So, um, so, so there you go. Um, that, uh, oh, and Eva Bronner. That's important. Eva Bronner. Oh, yeah. And that's, that she's a, she's a big figure in this world. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we could talk about everything, but I did write down what they say about Chicago, and that's just funny since most of our people are here. They say, stones, old, ugly people, Russian planes, great nightlife. <laughs> He's not wrong. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Last thing I want to say before we move on here. This... Oh, the living mannequin. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, yes. And there's a, a big... Um, Blood and Black Lace probably saw that sort of. No, sorta. didn't see it. Oh, yeah. He never saw Blood and Black Lace. He, he totally missed that movie. Not familiar, not familiar with the filmmaker. Don't know that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but truly, this movie really is an astonishing experience. And 
if if you're if if it ever sounds intense to climb into these movies remember they're all pretty short this one's like an hour and 18 minutes or some shit so, so short just yeah. dive in this is the one that will get you you know if you're playing along and you want to just do the the speed version orloff diabolical dr z succubus if that trio lineup doesn't do it for you then uh it's okay you then you don't need to listen to the rest of these like 20 episodes we're about to do so all right for time we're moving along and we're going to end on the last two movies he's going to do for this segment last for the akia or aquila films and the first will be sadistorotica aka two undercover angels aka the case of the two beauties We're back to the red lips, folks. They're back. These these hoes back, and they are <laughs> they are full of shenanigans. And uh, yeah, this might remind you of some things that uh, uh, you know you don't like, like sixties spy shit. But however, these are infused with that same spirit. And we go all the way back to We Are Eighteen. This is finally where We Are Still Eighteen. The same movies. Yeah, so same like yes. And even really more so. I mean, there's some very explicit images of them in cars that feels like, okay, I you're making that connection. Um and uh also Morpho shows back up, baby. Yeah, Morpho and Radic, the two yeah, of the two somnambulists in Franco's left. <laughs> yes, Morpho's now a weird wolf guy. I'm not gonna say a wolf guy, <laughs> but a wolf guy. That's what that's what's good to know about these two is uh, <laughs> you definitely can't call them horror movies at all, but for whatever reason they have some horror things kind of strung through them. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, uh, even so, the the second the one the second one we'll get to, but um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to go into the plots of these because I don't think that's that important. It's just you know these these women are now. Um, infused with uh, a little bit of play and fun that was there in um, the first red lips but not done to this extent uh because now th- these movies are actually fun you know your mileage for this stuff might run a little uh bare at times but even for someone like me who can really not stand this stuff i i really had a good time uh it's infectious it helps that frank goes in them because he's also having so much fun playing a character. Um, but I think, uh, and also just for everybody, I'm sorry, John, but you committed to it. Uh, we are talking about the theatrical cuts. I will be going into the extended Spanish versions of both of these films on the Patreon. <laughs> yes, you will. Yes, you will. Actually, I have to go grab a package downstairs real quick. Do you want to start going into that right now? And I'll cut it into it. Nope. No, because that's for the Patreon one. But I can tell you, I'm just going to talk about why I love this movie. While please, you're gone. please do that. And I will so, be right back. I'll pretend I'm talking to you so I don't feel weird. <laughs> I'm right here. I'm this, and I'm right here. I just like to, I like to hear your opinions on things. And you will. Just get saved. I'm just going to pause. Go do it. Go do it. I'm just going to pause. Go. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'll go quick. Okay, it doesn't matter so, what I'm doing. Two, under, two undercover angels. Um, 
first of all, while you were gone, I started thinking. Here we go. This <laughs> is how we're doing it now. <laughs> it is it is correct that uh Ava Browner is in Succubus, but what I was <laughs> trying to fucking say was Janine Reynad. That's who I was talking about, who plays uh, Lorna, gotcha. the character. Um, anyway, that's relevant because she's fucking amazing in Two Undercover Angels. And that's when her and Jess started. So I meant to say yeah. Janine Reynad. She couldn't be the more opposite in this from what she is in Succubus. Um, she's amazing. Uh, I like to, I've always liked to think of this movie. The person who showed it to me called it uh, <laughs> Peeping Tom, but like a Spanish pulp novel version. And I think that's a great way to look at it. Uh, yeah, the really, character does you know, kill and film it, right? Yeah. No, it really is. It's a. It's definitely a peeping Tom. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that, but infused with truly so much energy, like nonstop energy. And I don't think too much zaniness to get in the way because there's a little bit of, you know, hard edge would be the wrong word, but there's enough of an edge here to keep it an interesting, you know, almost thriller in moments, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I, yeah, I don't there know. Is. This, one, this one, this one I love very much. I think it's really fun. Um and yeah, more fun, Reddick. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, at the fucking not, best. Um, yeah, this, this is not the. Wait, this isn't the one where uh, Pereira's brother shows up, is it? Oh, that's the second but, one. No, that's right. That's the second. Yeah, yeah. Al yeah. Pereira. Yeah, but the in the first one, well, both of these two, the soundtracks, as always, are fucking amazing. But truly, with this, it's like some of the snappiest jazz around um oh it's amazing. great oh it's great and Jess is having a blast they look amazing uh the colors are incredible thankfully these are you know now restored i imagine most of you have them but um they look beautiful as they should and then kiss me monster um i think it's i, I like this one even more um but it feels like it kind of feels like the um, like almost drugged out version of Two Undercover Angels. Kiss Me Monster, it's not quite hallucinogenic. It's not quite psychedelic, but it's starting to, it's, it, it, I don't know, it's heading in that direction. Like it's really odd and it all feels really crazy. And it feels like he maybe came up with it. Maybe this is true and it's known. I have no idea. It feels like maybe while they were partying one night real hard after Kiss Me Monster, they were like really zonked, maybe some acid because they'd made succubus. Maybe they all had the sugar cubes from succubus. Yeah, I was going to say. And yeah. then he was, like, he was like, kiss me, monster. And this, I've got it. Because <laughs> it feels like a, a very drug fueled idea in a great way, though, because they execute it and it still has the same energy, still the same amount of fun. Um, no, I fucking love these movies. No, this, so one, this one's definitely a little more disjointed not in a bad way but it, it's it's a yeah, little druggy yeah it's a little <laughs> it's druggy yeah pot he, yeah, you know. the first one the first one feels like it had a, a tight script and the second one feels like they shot it after hours without it, a script yes this is what i wish lucky the inscrutable was closer to <laughs> you give up all those tight well-written jokes <laughs> i'll keep the jokes i just would have liked the structure of this movie maybe a bit more because it it's weird i mean downright incoherent in some spots um yeah. and then just having the time of his life 
And you can also tell he's happy to be doing stuff like this with a bit more sleaze in it than he could his previous spy outings or red lips outings. Torture. Got some torture. Got some torture. And again, well, we've been harping on this whole time. These fucking women are just having a goddamn blast. Duping so folks left and right. Fucking with dudes. Living their life. This, You know what? These movies, if people meant it when they said living your best life... <laughs> It's these two red lips movies. <laughs> yeah. And the and the um the end of the movie when they're they're at the um the windmill. Yeah. Um I think eventually when they get to where those like weird creepy monks are, Hal Pereira shows up, the Interpol agent. I'm not gonna spoil <laughs> what's going on there, but it definitely has a whiff of the finale of we are 18. Yes. Very much. Like that one seems very purposefully like that's what's going on here. Yep. I I, I like this one. It it is really fun. I mean, this is one you can truly just, I mean, both these really not that I want to big up a certain company's uh, releases of these, but, um, these are fun. Yeah. Great releases. They're they're great. Yeah. Now it's all part of my <laughs> joke with them. But I, uh, yeah, no, I, I think after everything that we you've watched, if you've watched everything up until this point with us, this is a great little way to just kind of kick back, crack a crack a mai tai. We can't really crack a mai tai. I'm just trying to think of what they would drink watching this movie. Like the people who went to see it. Like if you were, yeah, you mean like a human now. What do you think Franco was drinking off screen with his cast and crew? Martinis. Mm, maybe the Madrid Actually, makes me think it was something a little more exotic. But uh, I don't. He feels pretty simple to me. But I feel like I feel like Janine right now was throwing back beers. She seems like a beers gal. Yeah, actually, yeah. Really, I only mean that in the the biggest compliment to boys. That's a that is a a positive thing when it comes out. <laughs> does Doctor Orloff's name show up in this one? It does in one of them, I believe. I can't remember. No, I don't know if it's this one, but yeah, I do know that like at some point that in, anyway. Um, well, I'm I, gonna I'll, when I because I'm gonna rewatch the <laughs> Spanish cuts too for the uh Patreon, so I will double check. And if we need to uh readdress at the start of the next one that we missed the Norloff sighting, we'll always come correct with you guys. I don't think we did, but if we did, our bad. So, and as you see, and, yeah. And there's gonna there's gonna be lots of shit we'll miss because that's how crazy this world is, and also the world of these kind of filmmakers. They worked with one million people. We can't get it all. We're doing our best, but we hope it's fun and enjoyable. Yeah, and you learn shit, and you get excited to watch more of these movies because they fucking rule. Yeah, this they're is not- our dude. We're we're what seventeen movies in, or is it sixteen? Seventeen movies in to uh, to a a long journey, but one that I'm even more excited than I was when we said we were going to do it. So there it is. Your first two episodes of this early period of his life. We're not done with the sixties because he's still going to make 
yeah, all of his movies for um, Harry Allen Towers in the 60s. But then, and that'll be the next episode, we'll be focusing on the Harry Allen Towers films. And then we will dive into some of the other companies he would work with before he goes full Eurocine for a long stretch of the 70s. And then, boy, we really got places to go after that. So this is definitely the episode that you have to complete these two to go with the rest. We're going to be very clearly in pure Franco land soon enough. And these Harry Allen Towers movies, more than in some spots that people would like to admit, to me, feel like full-on Franco territory. Oh, yeah. The first one was Hot Wheels that I won't even say. Uh... If you have the story book, you can look. But the first one we'll start with, you're going to probably hear us defend more than most people do. So I will for that. Oh, yeah. Now I know that it is. I will definitely defend the fuck out of that movie. And guess what? Is it problematic? Absolutely. Is it also fucking awesome? Absolutely. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yes, it is. On the line of of our problematic journey through the land of Jess Franco. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.